My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. The revolutions 360 degrees ciphers of speak your class actions is weak half glass half mass freedoms of speech empty platitudes and gratitude leaks out the orifice held tight rubber bullets pullet ballots bullies malice no push kings kush dawns of the handmaid's tall tales welcome back my guest today on the show is bassist melvin gibbs his cv is mind-blowing he's played with previous transmissions guest bill frizzell the rollins band Sonny Chirac, Ardo Lindsay, and many more artists and groups. He's a member of uh, the jazz rock fusion group Body Meta with Greg Fox, Sasha Frere Jones, and Gray McMurray. And he's got a new EP out now called 4 Plus 1 Equals 5 for May 25. It's a deeply personal reflection on the murder of George Floyd and uh, tries to capture some of the energy of the protests and cultural movements of the last year. We got into his roots in New York, coming up in Defunct, his genre-defining approach, his first meeting with Sonny Chirac, and a lot more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I know I enjoyed having it. I'll speak with you a little bit more on the other side. Thanks for listening to Transmissions. Thanks for joining us here on Transmissions, Melvin. It's a real honor to have you. How are you? Uh, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing good. You know, it's, I had a weird accident. Well, not weird accident. A kind of accident you would have in Amsterdam, in New York City. Somebody knocked me off my bicycle. Oh man! So I've you know been dealing with the last few weeks with a broken knee. Oh. So, but you know, I start. It's in the recovery phase now, and that's good. Yeah. And. I hobbled around Italy on it a couple of weeks ago with Arlo Lindsay. Oh yeah, so that was, that's what I was gonna say. You you were you were traveling over the last couple last couple of weeks, right? Yes, I've had in the, in the last two weeks I had four COVID tests. Oh wow, yeah, that's in, yeah, <laughs> that's in, stuff stuck up my nose four times. Yeah, it's intense, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've come to find out that every everything has its virtuosos. There was one. With a woman who did it at the Rome airport, I didn't even notice she did it. Yeah, it, but the the other woman, I noticed very well. <laughs> that that w- that's that's been my experience with them as well. Is is that uh, there really is a lot in the individual uh touch, you know, like so, cer- certain people are 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 better at it. So you were in Italy. How uh, when when did you first go to Italy? Is has I mean, I'm sure it's been a few times. <sighs> Uh, when did I first go? Oh, the first, I guess, was that my first trip to Europe? Yeah, so it was my very first trip to Europe hmm. back in 1980. Yeah, was that uh, was that with Defunct or was that? That was, well, that was a funny day because it was two different bands on the same trip. Ah. I played in Den Haag, Holland at the North Sea Jazz Festival with Ronald Shannon Jackson and the Decoding Society. And then I hopped on a multiple modes of transportation from train to the plane to the bus to get to Monte Catini, where Fellini uh, films his movies mm. in Italy. So my first trip to Europe was a international adventure, literally traveling by myself on the train. You know, it was great. Yeah, great experience. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Well, well, your your latest uh, project, uh, four plus one equals five for May twenty five. I think I have it. I think that's the way. It that goes. is correct. Yes, that. Uh, it's a collaboration with. How do I say? How do I say this artist's name? Is it? Is it? Co- Kokai. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Um. 
it's really it's an intense listen uh just in terms of these sort of atmospheric science fiction synths that happen sometimes there's moments that feel very cinematic and almost remind me of something like in i don't know have you ever seen the the movie judge dread or maybe it's just dread anyway I never did see never see, did see that movie. Yeah, there's some really Oof. intense, cool things that are happening just in terms of the experimental electronics that you're doing that remind me of that soundtrack. And then, of course, you've got rap and you've got these bass solos, and it's all built around this conceptual thing, which is, I mean, you're looking at the the murder of George George Floyd through a really personal lens because May 25th is also your birthday, right? Yep. Oof. <laughs> so yeah, I'm so. I mean, the whole, that thing was a kind of a journey and that, you know, it happened on my birthday and a year later, it kind of couldn't really, I didn't feel like I could avoid reflecting on it, you know, so I kind of, I mean, my, I spent a lot of time at the square kind of just feeling it out because my original thing with that, as, as I wrote in my, the notes to the release was that I didn't really feel like there was any music that kind of captured the moment. You know, you think about songs like Change Is Gonna Come or whatever, and you think about the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah, but yeah. At the, what happened last summer was, you know, there was nothing, because it was, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say it that way, but there was nothing that caught it. So what ended up happening is people just, you know, people need to need stuff to bond together over, you know? Yeah. So they just kind of bonded together over like the current pop songs, you know, especially like the current kind of in New York, the kind of Brooklyn drill thing. They kind of bond, bond, they kind of bonded around the songs, you know, pop smoke. Yeah. And that sound. So that became a part of for me speaking to it kind of. I had to kind of include that sound in there on some level. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about how obviously you you've worked with rappers, you know, at various points in your in your career. You know, you played on the the Dead Prez, you know, I mean, so you're yeah. so you're you've got like long established rap bona fides, but I wonder when you first got your start, you know, with coming up in New York sort of associated with the sort of no wave scene. I imagine you heard rap pretty much as it was was born. Is that pretty close to accurate? Well, well, I mean, the rap scene kind of, yes, I was there. The rap scene kind of came from two different directions. I mean, it kind of grew out of the poet scene that was kind of personified by the last poets. Yeah. And when I was coming up, I was in a couple of bands that were basically a variation on the last poets lineup. One in particular that I loved that was a Haitian drum troupe, was, was a Haitian drum troupe and me and a poet. So that was a common sound. Yeah. Contemporaneous with that was, you know, the evolution of DJ culture, you know, in New York, whether you had it on the club side with, you know, the loft, which is a little before my time, but the Paradise Garage, which was a continuation of the loft. Yeah. And what they used to call the master mix, where they would do these sort of long new constructions of songs, you know, so you have this DJ culture and then, you have in meeting, you know, the Caribbean community, you have Jamaicans in New York who kind of put their whole kind of, uh, you know, their way of dealing with remixing, you know, the dub and the rewind and all of that. And then they kind of came together into this, this sound. So, you know, kind of growing up, you know, coming up the way I came up musically, I was playing with a lot of poets. In Brooklyn, I was dealing with a lot of, you know, people in the Caribbean community, so I understood what was happening from that side. And my relatives, you know, my grandma and my my aunt lived in the Bronx, so I was spending a lot of time up there, so I knew what was happening as far as what they were doing with the remix culture. Right. So um, I didn't go in that direction as much, but, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing I was talking about when I uh, first started playing, you know, the, one of my mentors, you know, I started off on percussion because of one of my mentors. And I was, you know, after playing percussion for a few months, I went to him and said, hey, you know, I mean, percussion's okay and everything, but I really either want to be a bass player or a DJ. And my mentor said, uh, you should be a bass player because that DJ thing's not going to last. 
Well, he was incorrect, but uh, he, he was in, he was very incorrect. <laughs> but but the point being, I was <laughs> I've always had my ear in, on both sides of that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, in addition to uh, this this solo EP, this collaboration with Kokai, uh, you know, you've got the the great new Body Meta record. I guess it's not really pronounced Body Meta, right? It's like Body. Yeah, it is. Oh. It is Body Meta. Okay, like the, like, like the internet record. Yes, but it's a pie sign instead of a T which exactly yeah 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 but that record I mean that's also really in so cool and I was thinking about how between that and and you know stuff like Harriet Tubman you know you've always just had that rock thing being a big part of your you know career as well and, and your and your style I wonder was rock stuff you did you listen to rock stuff growing up too when you were like really young yeah, I mean, I listened to a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, particularly us, you know, we used to listen to, you know, what, what they used to call, I mean, what we ended up calling, I guess, you know, black rock, more stuff like yeah, a band, a band from Brooklyn called Mandro, for example, that was, you know, really influential to us. You know, the, of course, P-Funk, you know, um, you know, the stuff... I can think of stuff like uh, a band called Undisputed Truth that was on Motown, mm. produced by Norman Whitfield, you know, and even some of the, the Temptations record when he kind of brought that rock sound in. Yeah, it's like it's like psychedelic shack. Even I think about their some. Yeah, or some- yeah, that's when it's that's when it started. Yeah, and yeah, it, and it's interesting, and 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 of course, you know, a big part of that is the extremely controversial record Electric Mud and its follow up. <laughs> you know, yeah. which are such, I mean, it's funny, you listen to those records now, I mean, those records are so, they're just great records, you know. Yeah. I, you can understand why Muddy hated them, but you can also just say, dude, these are just great records. Yeah, you know? yeah, I mean, so there's obviously, I think about how, I mean, the, the idea of the sort of, you know, I don't know, the the rock thing, like the division, what gets does what gets called rock versus what gets called something else, you know what I mean? And it's like the commonalities between all the stuff that you're talking about, you know, obviously all of the the early rock stuff was straight up, you know, uh well it's not, not none of it's straight up. There's always like weird, you know, cross things happening. But I just think it's so interesting what gets you know, because I always heard Funkadelic referred to, obviously, as a funk band, you know? But then, of course, yeah. it's kind of hard to deny that there's, obviously, they rock as well, like, very heavily, you know? So it's like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, they're one, of, they're one of the great rock bands. Well, you know, it's, I mean, even, you know, Isley Brothers, I'm just thinking, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, The Division is funny because, you know, this came up in conversation with Vijay The Division is a business division. You know, and particularly in the context of America, the division, it comes along racial lines, you know, yeah, because yeah. you have to keep one music on this side and the other music on that side because you can't, to have them competing directly, the one you want to win might not win. <laughs> yeah, you know? right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's an intense thing. As somebody who, I mean, but 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 you always, I mean, like early on, like a lot of the, uh, the people who you, that you played with, you know, were obviously intensely blurring that line between jazz and and rock or or kind of whatever you know there was always like a little bit of a if a i'm curious you know when you think about playing with somebody like sonny chirac i mean obviously one of the most intense guitarists ever to live probably and uh it was it's just so funny to me sometimes thinking about how his his records at the same time it's I, i i wonder what were how were they marketed? You know, were were rock audiences tuned in to to Sonny Chirac in your experience? Uh, it's an in, that's an interesting question on a couple of different levels. I'll answer it directly. Sure. I mean, I'll answer it indirectly and directly. I start with directly. When I was playing with Sonny, we used to play at the Knitting Factory. Yeah, and we're talking about. I guess I started playing with him in '85. Anyway, at some point along the line, I noticed, not I noticed, it was impossible to ignore the fact that the gigs were, the gigs were always packed. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, who are these people who are coming to the gigs? 
And, you know, I just went and did some audience research and I was kind of like, yo, what's going on? It turned out it was deadheads. Whoa. It was all deadheads. And this was before Medeski Martin and Wood, before, you know, Schofield made that record. Yeah. And I was kind of like, dude, you know, we're missing our market here. These are the people who want to hear the music. So for the Sonny Chirac band, in my tenure, that was the backbone of what that band did. For me coming up, you know, I heard him, I mean, I heard him through his own music more than, you know, because I didn't understand as a kid, you know, you don't know how to read line notes. I didn't understand that he was that crazy sound in Herbie Mann's band or whatever. Oh, you know? right, so, right. But uh, I learned from him from just basically hanging in records. I was like, a re- I'm, I was a record store nerd back in those days, you know, so that's kind of how I found out about him. And I had you know, a couple of great friends who worked in record stores back then. And they were kind of like, yeah, you need to check this man out, you know, kind of like on education tips. So that's how I knew about it. Plus, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite records of all time, this, some of my favorite records of all times of a series of Fandor Saunders records. Uh, right. Head is one of the ones he played on. So of course I know that, you know, I'm going to check for it. That was the point where I did actually pay attention to the line of notes, and sure. I'm looking for like anybody who was involved in this record. And he was one of them. Right, you right. Know? So you had a pretty yeah. You understood him very, very much so from his own body of work. It sounds like. Uh, I I understood that he was a great musician. I didn't know enough about his body of work. To, I knew enough about his body to work to know that I wanted to be involved with what he was doing. You know, I put it that way. And, you know. Yeah. And then I f- then kind of filled in the blanks, you know, for some of the more oops, because a lot of stuff he's on is he's either slightly credited or uncredited. For instance, for instance, he's on Jack Johnson and he's oh. very obviously on Jack. If you listen to the record, the second the long song on the second side, you listen and by halfway through this guitar comes in, you're like, oh, you know, yeah, of course, it's Sonny. Who else would it be? You know, right. And he's on he's on Wayne Shorter's Supernova album. He's on a whole bunch of things that. You know, it didn't, for whatever reason, it didn't add up to a career, you know, in the traditional sense, because I guess because he was just so far ahead of the curve. And, you know, towards the end, it started to add up again and you know, got to make, you know, I got to play with them. Then he got to do the record, with, you know, with Farrell and Elvin, you know, you know. Yeah. And so, so he managed to leave behind some stuff that kind of pointed to how, how great he is. And now everybody's talking about him because of the, the movie, you know, because he's got like a little cameo in that. Uh, in the, in the, the, the Summer of Soul documentary, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Ex- exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and it's just like, I want to just, I want to see, I want to see so much more Sonny Chirac footage, you know? They, they need mm-hmm. to give him his own movie, of course. But, um, yeah. yeah, so so when you started working with him, I mean, what, what you know, what what was your what was your first meeting with him like? Oh, that was great. We I went when I was in the Decoding Society of Ronald Shannon Jackson. We used to rehearse at a place called Soundscape, and it was uh, Soundscape was a performance venue that generously opened up their time their time in the daytime for Decoding Society to rehearse. So Sonny was playing there, so I went to go see him, and he was playing there, and you know that was before any. I was in that funny comeback era. So I was, there was maybe like literally like 10 people there. Mm. And I was kind of like, just really enjoying the show. And then after the set, I went to him, introduced myself. Hey, I'm Melvin, blah, blah, blah. Play with Shannon. I told him what I played with so he could get some kind of context that I wasn't just some random guy. And we had a great conversation, talked to the other guys in the band, Kendall and, and Leander, and, you know, became friends with them that day, you know, kind of, two degrees of separation with both of them and then i was like went and grabbed my coat and i was like okay i'll see you guys next time and he's kind of like because what had happened is after the set everybody had left and it was just me and the band talking so i went to get my coat to leave like and he's kind of like and sonny said hey we're playing you know we're playing two sets i was like there's nobody here he said we're playing two sets <laughs> so i <laughs> so i took off my coat and sat down and i got my own private sonny Chirac concert man whoa yes. yeah yes. yeah so then that so then after that i basically just followed him around like a puppy for a while yeah because it was that era you know 
it was that was a busy time in New York, and I knew eventually that you know the other bass player was going to have another gig or whatever, and I just wanted to make sure that he knew I was the first person he should call. Yeah, and, yeah. And then that finally happened, and you know things went from there. So you you said that that you had a, a mentor who who said you know go with the bass instead of instead of uh, DJing. I yeah. I'm I'm curious what uh what what your first sort of like experiences with bass were like. When did 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 you get you know what what kind of what kind of rig did you get set up with when you started learning? Oh man, I that I mean I would put that into two columns. I mean. The experience with bass of learning about bass and you know just wanting to be immersing in the idea of bass was just kind of a function of the time and the music of that era that all of its bass forward music you know playing funk being you know playing you know because i was a record collector when i was a kid so right right i was way way into funk and then found out about dub you know and then got way into dub and reggae as opposed, and also, you know, going up to the Bronx and being into Latin music. So basically, all the music that I was into, the bass was the focal, the low end was the focus of the music, not the, you know, the hot, not the singer, not the guitar player, or whatever. Right. So that was kind of, and also getting into sound system culture, you know, because that was the days where people started buying systems and, thinking about speeches, especially, you know, with the Jamaicans in the neighborhood, you start thinking about sound in a different way. So that was the, the, the initial entree, which is the, the sound of the bass. But the instrument itself, I went, you know, I went like got myself a little, you know, summer job and working at a butcher shop. And when I got enough money, I hopped on a Long Island Railroad, went out to the mall and bought myself a Kingston bass and a Kingston amp which is like, you can Google it. And so that's what, and I, I always say those, those early, those cheap instruments, they make them hard to play to uh, weed out the people who don't really want to be musicians. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so I had that and then, you know, I just had that for a while and I, you know, I, I stuck with it and just decided I liked it and I just kind of kept building from there. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was thinking about how so you know obviously in the 80s you're 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 working with all sorts of different in all sorts of different modes and then in the 90s you end up uh working with with the Rollins band and uh and and I'm curious how you ended up crossing paths with with those guys was it just sort of uh did you have what kind of what kind of connections did you have between that group and yourself well, I mean, it's funny because I have to, uh, whenever I tell this conversation, it, it, it always starts with Gil Evans. And uh, the reason it starts with Gil Evans has to do with a very good friend of mine named Alphonia Timms, who became Gil's mentor, who was mentored by Gil for a while. And this is important because I believe it was the second time we went out there to Gil's house. We went up into the apartment. And Gil has uh, two sons, Miles and Noah. Miles is a trumpet player and runs the band. And Noah is a bass player and recording engineer. And Noah had a had a hardcore band with Mackie, who was then in the Chromags and then later became the drummer for the Bad Brains. Uh, I think the band was called Frontline. And uh, they had just come from rehearsal, and Mackie had this cassette with him. And it was like, yo, y'all got to hear this. And he popped the cassette in and like 30 seconds into it, I was like, this is the greatest band that ever lived. It was the not yet released first Bad Brains record. So uh, I became an instant, it only took 30, sec took 30 seconds before me to become a permanent Bad Brains fan. Yeah, yeah. And, and they had a gig in New York in a place called A7. And I was at that, you know, at that gig. A lot of us were at that gig. And it turns out Henry was at that gig. We, but we didn't know each other at the time. You know what I mean? And the point being that I was a big, big Bad Brains fan, but I didn't know shit about Black Flag. And I just didn't, you know, you know, the, you know, the only thing I knew, you know, I didn't know the richness of the DC scene. I found out later, but all I knew was the brains. Yeah. And, uh, 
I actually met Henry for the first time. Uh, Arta Lindsay did a double, I guess it must have been a double bill, at the old knitting factory with Lydia Lunch. And I guess Henry was on tour with her at that time. You know, doing, they were doing like a spoken word thing. Yeah. And that was the first time I actually met him. Uh, and then kind of fast forward up, you know, we we kind of crossed paths again on the last, what ended up being my last tour was Sonny Chirac. Because uh, I guess we played in Amsterdam and I guess they played the day before we did. So I kind of heard about it. Yeah. And then I found out later that Andrew had heard of, Andrew was actually at that gig because they, they played the day before. So that's kind of when the the Rollins, that was the day that the the name Rollins Band actually crossed my path because I hadn't really thought thought about it like that before. But then I was kind of like that interested in the band, and uh, I remember when I going to you know I remember we went to the first Lollapalooza, you know me and the guitar player in my rock band, and I'm kind of kind of looking around. I had just broken up with my lady, so I'm kind of just looking around at you know women or whatever <laughs> and uh so basically my guitar player was like wow man this band is really good so i kind of stopped my like you know reverie and <laughs> paid attention to the band it turned out it was the rollins band that's kind of when i you know, yeah that's kind of when they really came on my radar and then uh you know i kind of ended up i guess it was a year later year and a half later i kind of ended up between bands or whatever and uh um chris calls you know who called me he's kind of like hey the bass player and i basically i, I turned him down because i was still signed to sony at that time and i was kind of like hmm i'm gonna try to i'm not ready to give up on on just doing what i want to do yeah but uh i got convinced to go check it out and he and for you know as the universe would have it he called back and the second time i was kind of like okay you know whatever it's not gonna hurt to do this and i kind of went into the went into the lab and put a couple of riffs together to bring to jam with the guys and then we went you know we got together and it was kind of like instant love with the guys i was like this is amazing so that was just that. jumped in yeah yeah and came, come to find out later, Vernon had actually given them my, uh, you know, he's the one who kind of told them about me. Oh, but I, of course, yeah, they did. But they already knew about me because they were big, you know, because they were Sunny fans. Yeah. And they were the Coding Society fans. So, you know, they knew who I was. So you said that that your paths crossed with Rollins at a Sunny Chirac show. So in addition to Deadheads, there were some, punk, no, no. some punks there, too. No, no, not a Sunny at a Art of Lit. Oh, he was he was touring with Lydia Lunch at the time. Got it, got it. And, and I was playing with Arta Lindsay at the time, and we were got it. We double built. We double built at the uh, Knitting Factory. Got it, got it. So yeah, so but they were but they were Chirac fans. They they all the the Rollins band guys. They knew your work through that. Yeah, they knew. Oh, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, they knew my work through. Yeah, so and they're deadheads. Or at least Henry is. I don't know if Sim is, but Henry is. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I've ever really sought Rollins on the dead out, but I'm sure that there's a lot of, you know, I'm sure I'm, uh, I'm sure he has thoughts. Yeah. No, he's, he's, he's more of a fan than not a fan. I mean, he's like, you know, that's one of the great things about Henry. He actually, you know, of the music he's interested in, he gets really interested in it, and he's got pretty interesting taste, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely fun to talk with him about music. A, a while back on on Twitter, you mentioned something like those guys introduced you to Black Flag, or not not Black Flag to Black Sabbath. Uh, and I'm yeah. I'm curious what you introduced them to, maybe. Uh, I, that's interesting. I think they knew a lot of. I mean, the one band that. Was that already then or was that before? No, that was on that tour when I got there. I mean, there's one, I'm trying to think. Yeah, probably some rap stuff that they wouldn't have listened to otherwise, you know. But I think the main thing is something that I've introduced quite a few people to that's one of them groups that 
you know, they're so good that when people hear them, they don't even talk about them. It's in a group called, the first two albums by a group called Le Tambours du Brazza. Yeah, I don't they're, know. They're out of, uh, not, I don't think they're from, yeah, they're out of Brazzaville, Congo, the other Congo. And it's, the first two records are just drums and vocals. And those are like two of the greatest records ever made. You know, you, you know one's on there. One's on a kind of like Belgian sort of folkways type label. And the other one is just on some random French label. But the band is, 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 is what they're doing with the drums on, on those records. On yeah. Well, I'll have to, I'm going to have to check, check them out. I don't, I don't know those albums, but yeah, that, yeah. Well, you know, they're very French, but it's just really amazing because it's a, basically like, a, uh, an African drum group, but led led by a trap drummer. So all the beats are much more yeah kind of American sounding, and it's just really really great breaks. Really like anything you know, it's like the greatest drum corps that ever lived, basically. Yeah, yeah. You talked about being a a, a record collector. Do, are are you still? Would you still consider yourself a, a record collector? Do you still hit up shops and stuff? Not so much these days, simply because oh, I don't think anyone's hit a shop in the last year. I mean, I hit a band camp these days. For sure. I still, but yeah, it's, I mean, for me, it kind of became a space issue because there's been long-term construction in, in the building I live in, so I haven't had space to deal with records. And also, I've just kind of gotten much more into, you know, keeping up with technology so you got to learn new software and making beats so it's kind of like i haven't my spare time doesn't go so much to searching down other people's sounds because i kind of have a at this point i kind of have a pretty strong idea of what i want to do and i just want to figure out how to do it yeah for sure for sure you talked about making beats did you play drums as a young person too how did you kind of get into the i you know how did obviously playing bass you're part of the rhythm section you know in a in a Mm. way but well, as I was saying earlier, my first instrument is congas, so I know how to play. You know, I'm a rudiment, I'm I'm a rudimentarily uh, sufficient on wanting to play Latin music. Yeah, and, and you know, by extension, different West African musics as well that are based off the based off of percussion. Uh, my trap drumming. Once the drum machine got invented, I decided I didn't need to learn how to play trap drums anymore, so I yeah. got into that. But so I don't really play trap so much anymore. You know, you know, at this point, you got to learn how to play a little cute, you know, going to music school, learn how to play a little keyboard so I can play a little keyboards. Uh, can play guitar. I don't love doing it. You know, I'd rather I do the piccolo bass thing when I have to play in that range. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's about the rhythm section. It's about, you know, percussion, you know, I, you know, what even in a, and for me, big thing was kind of like, I always tell people I didn't take sampling seriously till I read uh, Derrida. <laughs> Believe it or not, Derrida turned me into he turned me into uh, you know a hip hop producer. Seriously, I just didn't take yeah. I just didn't take the music seriously until then. Yeah, because it's just like I was just kind of like, okay, these guys are just taking the old records that they would have rapped on anyway, and they're just looping them. It's like there's no you know there's nothing to that. But, you know, reading of grammatology and reading about, you know, Derrida's concepts of, of bricolage and, you know, looking at a Romare Bearden piece and being like, okay, this is basically just, you know, built by samples. This is like, a, this thing is like a visual hip hop beat. Yeah, right. And, and so I just kind of got into more into the idea of digital sound and I actually back in those days took fair light lessons. So I kind of learned how to do the technology and things went up, you know, in the nineties, like I had an Ensonic sampler, made some beats, did a record that's kind of like, you know, produced a kid named people without shoes from the Bronx that the record's kind of like an underground classic in a certain kind of way. And yeah, I just kind of got it, got into thinking about music that way more. I don't do it. I didn't want to do that as a thing that I do because I just didn't want to. But at this point, you know, it kind of evolved into working with sound and sound design. And what really happened in the last couple of years is that, you know, I, you know, I'm a project, project, 
product of my era, 80s, 90s, New York, and, you know. My beats were like straight up boom bap beats, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and then the sound kind of changed to the Atlanta sound, and I was kind of like, well, all right, you know, I need to kind of just leave this alone because this is not natural to me. And it happened that, you know, my my child was living in Berlin when they were 15 and 16, which is about five years ago now. And uh, I went to go hang out in Berlin and, you know, take care of them for a month while their mom did whatever she was doing. And uh, they were really into the mu- music coming out of London. And, and for me, I was kind of like, this music is amazing. I mean, I'm not a huge, uh, let me not even say that. The, the beats were amazing. And the beats were the way I think about beats. It's just that kind of like multiple rhythms laid on top of each other. So I was kind of like, well, if these are the kind of beats people are making, I could make beats like these. This is just, this is what I do anyway. Right. You know, even you listen on some of the stuff I did for Artos Records, even you listen to the stuff that's on my uh, Elevated Entity record. So it's all layered rhythms. So I'm kind of like, mm, I can do this. So I kind of got back into paying attention to producers again, you know, checked out six, seven and the different things coming out of London and got kind of started learning how to make those beats. Because I figured at some point, you know, some some West Indian kid who had relatives in London was going to find out about this music. And they were going to put, a, you know, some New York rapping on top of it. And that would just make the thing take off. Yeah. And that's it took a while, but it happened. So I was kind of like, OK, I can start making beats again. So I started making beats again. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's a different thing now. And right now I'm trying to balance, you know, for to, to go on for the next record, I'm trying to figure out the balance of the sound design and the beats and how I, how I want to approach that, you know, what's going to work for me. But yeah, it's, I've, I've really gotten into like really serious sound design. Like, you, you know, it's interesting you picked up on the, the cinematic aspect of uh, the, the stuff I did. Yeah. I was trying to paint, I was definitely trying to paint a picture with that. Yeah. But also, but also on a more concrete level, I actually do, a lot of straight up sound design. That's like, you know, that's kind of like one of people who know everything I do, they know that I do that and I, I do it well, but I hadn't incorporated that into You're- my kind of regular thing, but I'm going into that world. I actually going to have a, I guess I might as well talk about it because it's going to happen. I'm actually going to have a record on Editions Migo coming out next year. Oh, cool. That's going to be all yeah. sort of sound design, ambient slash... Well, it's, uh, ambient mm, is probably not the correct not, term. Not the correct term. It's a, uh, it's, but it's. I guess you know. I found out about lowercase, you know, because of this. And it's funny because it's. I made it. I have a friend who is now. He's an old friend and a, somebody I we used to kick our ideas around to, for years together, and I always tell people around among us, you know, the African Americans in, in New York City who everybody thinks is genius, there's one person that we all think is a genius. And that's this man. This man's name is Arthur Jaffa. Arthur Jaffa, really great visual artist. And he won the prize at the last Venice Biennale. Mm. You know, he's fam- he's famous for his uh, the movie that he, I can't remember the name. Anyway, he's, he's pretty much one of the top artists on the planet right now. And uh, we've talked about, I did music for his very first installation and uh, done music for his other films and stuff. And he has a film out now that I believe the, 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 the final t- title is Agardra. And he asked me, you know, to do the soundtrack for it. And so this record on, on Migo is, is basically what I made for the soundtrack. Not all of which he used, yeah. but it's everything that I made. Oh, that's and cool. So, and it's all kind of like, he was really into, uh, what's my man's name? I got to look this dude up. Uh, he was really into this one, uh, I can't remember his name. I had to come down on it, but I can't look it up now. He was really into this one late 90s German sound artist who worked on it, who worked, turned out it worked on it, worked did all this stuff in the EPS, which is the same sampler I had back in those days. Mm. So anyway, he wanted some stuff that was kind of like 
to put it as, as short as possible, kind of like the black version of that, like the, you know, kind of like 808, dealing with 808. So I made it basically made a bunch of stuff that was, you know, future, the 808 version of this kind of music. And I didn't know anything about the kind of music, but I'm a long, t- you know, on, on Umbarchi is a long time friend. Yeah. So I sent the thing. I was kind of like, oh, all the people I know, who's going to get this thing I just made? So I sent it to him. Yeah. And, and he was kind of like, you know, and in the process of sending it to him, I went and kind of looked up, well, what do they call Orange music? Because to me, I know Orange so long, I didn't even think about the cat. I just go to the gigs. He's come to New York. I go, you know, I'm chilling. Yeah. So f- that's when I found out about Lowercase. Right. And that's what this. And I would say that this music, if you're going to fit it into a music category, it fits into that category. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So that's that. And I have also have a record in the can from a show at the Vision Festival from 2019 with my project called God Particle, which is myself and the theoretical physicist, Stefan Alexander. We have a project together where the, the basic, he wrote a book a few years back called The Jazz of Physics. Mm. And the basic hook of the book is the connection between Einstein and Coltrane. Yeah, I have not read this book, but I feel it sounds like I need to. It's a great book. You should take a look at it. But he's got a new one coming out. You might need to buy his new book because he's got one coming out in August called Fear of a Black Universe. So that's in a lot of similar riffs on, you know, similar riff to the first book, but, you know, more in tune with what's going on in his career at this point. Yeah. So I, so I have that. That's basically, I'm, I'm basically waiting back because I kind of decided that I want to include some version of the score in, in the release. So I'm kind of wait, I've been waiting to get the right graphics. So that's kind of, that's kind of what's held that up. That's in the can. And then I have to not have to, but then I'm going to make, you know, another record to build on what, I've done with, you know, four plus one equals five from age 25. That's going to come out next year as well. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like you've been intensely busy. Did you spend pretty much the last, did you spend a lot of the pandemic working on stuff? Well, I mean, you got to sit high around the house eight hours a day. Might as well get, I mean, I learned, right. I, what I, what I spent most of the time doing is, is learning, uh, a piece of equipment called the Kima, which is, a, a sound design, breakout box that they used a lot in the movies, you know, 10 years ago. So I learned how to do that. And I, the, the, the soundtrack for author's piece was basically made in that. So that's what I spent a large percentage of the time doing. Uh, and just kind of figuring out, finishing up my record, you know, in terms of just figuring out the new sound and kind of really looking for what sounds kind of captured accurately you know, the feelings that I, I got at the square. So that was, that was a project because that took a minute. Yeah. I mean, and like you said, there's like, there's a whole conceptual element to it. It follow it follows a narrative arc. You like lay it out that it's like the feeling of, of being there. And then the aftermath, it, it it's, it's like clear that you, you wanted this to have, uh, sort of a trajectory or an uh, you know an arc to work and it's despite the fact I mean it's, it's classified as an EP but it feels like a full statement you know to me well that's well you know well, thank you for saying that yeah I mean it, it definitely has an arc I mean it was kind of like the art came together for, when the, when the art came together fully was uh, the day that the doctor gave the testimony about how you know mr floyd died that's when it's kind of like okay this is what i got to do this is what i got to do and that's when the kind of thing all clicked in my head yeah some of that had some of that is sampled right so oh yeah well that that's yeah that's that's uh you know that's a you know it's funny that's one of my little uh my activist head come that's a problem that's literally a proper use of fair use there but yeah i mean it's uh I mean, but that the 327 piece is really sparked by conversations with Milford Graves, believe it or not. Oh, yeah. No, because Milford's thing was, you know, the African-Americans are natural Zen masters, hmm. you know, or one of his things. And that's something that's always stuck with me. So 
when, you know, I kind of felt like I wanted to, underneath the, the pain of the moment, I kind of wanted to figure out a way to reflect that in the in, in in the arc of what I was doing. So that's that's really how that's really what formed that piece to happen. You know what I mean? Does, does, and, and, but, do you have any sort of formal practice when it comes to something like Zen, or I mean, do you you know do you have a, any sort of religious or traditions that you adhere to? Well, I mean, I have a lot of stuff I know about. I mean, I've been you know a, a consistent meditator, you know, most of my adult life. Yeah, you know, followed a few different traditions. I mean, I wouldn't say I fit in any particular tradition i mean because the practice itself kind of doesn't once you've been doing the practice a while you understand that it's a practice and you know whatever clothes they put on it doesn't really change it that much right i mean one of the things that was really instrumental for me was when i was doing my family research you know uh i found out about the Igbo people from nigeria their spiritual practices they actually which is one of the groups that turned out that my, you know, my DNA is from. And one of the main groups that of African-Americans. Hmm. And it turns out that they have a, you know, their holy men have a meditation practice and they meditate using OM. Hmm. So I was kind of, I was already doing that. Yeah. So I was kind of like, okay. So at that point I was kind of like, okay, this, even before then, it was kind of like, well, this practice transcends any particular religion and now any particular region. You even read about a, there's a South African shaman called Credo Mutwa who wrote a series of books. And he talks about what the, what the South African shamans called Umbalini, which is the same thing as the Indians called Kundalini. Mm. So these practices are worldwide, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, if, you know, for, so I, at that point, I decided, well, let me just deal with the practices and not so much with the actual religious structure that seems to encompass it, because it always transcends that. But having said that, right now, for the last couple of years, I've been much more interested in, not more interested, I've been more interested in Buddhist practices, hmm. simply because the Buddha was had first world problems. You know, the Buddha lived much like we do. Right. You know, he had everything he wanted, you know, didn't really have any real problems like, you know, the people in, you know, that the people around him have, but still he was dissatisfied. Yeah. And I feel like that, I feel like that, that has resonance for people, you know, for, for our era, you know, it's like, there's a, um, I, I gave my child this book, the uh, subtle, it's, it was a it was a hit. Let me get the title right. The subtle art of not giving a fuck. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And, and that's basically what, at the end of the day, that's basically what Buddhism is. And the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's kind of where my head is now. But you know, it's kind of like I'm over the course of my life. I'm. I'm I'm not an initiate in any African religion, but I'm very well versed in them, you know. Yeah. I know a lot about them. I mean, it's just these things that allow other or facilitate other ways of thinking about the world. They're all interesting to me. Yeah. So. How do, does 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 music offer that as well, a way to think about the world uh for you per, on like a personal level well i mean for me it's 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 function as something that allows other people to do that is something that's really important to me yeah you know and to the extent that it says the thing has an arc or has a start to the you know four plus one equals five it's because you know cognizant of making that connection that people can like actually mentally enter into the music in a different way than they would interrupt enter into you know straight pop music and kind of come out of so they can come out in a different place than they would come out right you know yeah i mean and yeah and may, maybe it means it's not quite as popular but then i mean you know whatever doesn't that's different you're not trying to accomplish that purpose you know sure yeah you you can also choose to subtly not give a fuck about that too if you want yeah 
Well, you know, it's, it's kind of more like, I mean, one of the things that's been really interesting about this record for me, you know, is like kind of dealing with the way the music business now and dealing with, you know, even something small like, you know, you can, on Bandcamp, you can set it to pay what you want or whatever. And some people have really kind of, I guess, been moved by what they've heard and, you know, yeah. giving give way more than the minimum. Yeah. And I think that, you know, not that, that you know, that's not that that's the purpose of making, of, of what I want, of why I made it, but it's more of a question of, okay, so can this thing have an impact beyond the usual markers, you know, that the people who have, who have designed the system so they can continue to be in charge. Right. You know? No, yeah. So, Absolutely. Do you do you feel like with things like Bandcamp, there is more of a possibility for a sort of for for artists to have a more uh, equitable say in in what's happening with their work? Do you feel do you feel optimistic about that? Because it's easy to not feel optimistic when you look at a lot of the realities of streaming music in general. You know. Well, this goes into the other side. So, I mean, I was ahead of an artist rescue for a while, so right. I'm in, I'm in, this is stuff I'm intimately involved with. But to ask your to answer the question, the problem is the people. The problem is the same problem as always been. It's the problem. It's the people in between the the music and the people who love the music. You know, and they'll always not. They'll always cause problems, but they've caused. They they're the ones who are causing mischief. You know, it's like, and in particular right now, the streaming services. I feel like the band camp allows the artist to make a direct connection, which is much better. Yeah. So, and so in the short term, those the things that allow us to make a direct connection that allows us to get financial access other other is what's important. I'll put it that way. I don't, I don't want to, you know, put a stamp of approval on any one particular thing. Yeah. But I will say that, yeah, whatever. Right now, it's really. I used to always talk about the fact that a lot of the common wisdom of the internet is wrong when it comes to musicians, for the vast majority of musicians. You know, this, and it started for me. I read a book, a biography of a man named D. Hock. D. Hock is the person who started Visa and MasterCard. Hmm. And the whole problem that he had to solve, no, not the whole problem. But one of the problems he had to solve when he started it was making sure that, you know, the financial information could stay private. So that tells you that this whole thing they were selling to us back in the day, information wants to be free. That's the exact opposite. You know, the, infor the important information needs to stay private. And that's, you know, we're finding this out now with cyber, you know, all the cyber sure. crime and all of that, you know. So for me, you know, that I always kind of, I've always kind of seen how the internet works from the other end. And so I've never really kind of drank the Kool-Aid, but having said that, I mean, you have a whole generation that grew up thinking music should be free and you're not gonna, un, you're not gonna teach them it should be otherwise. But I think the thing that I think about is the thing, I mean, one of the funny things about me is, you, you know, you look about information for me from the early 80s. <coughs> Even though I was everywhere, you're not going to find a lot of documentation that I existed. Right. And that's that's because, you know, our thing back then was you had to be there. Right. And if you were there, then the people who were there knew you were there. And that was your documentation. You know what I mean? As opposed to like. Now it's like if it's not on if it's not in the picture, it didn't happen. Yeah. But those days, it was the exact opposite. If you weren't in the room, it didn't happen. Right. And, and I think that we're gonna, you know, I think that we're, gonna, we're looking at a new version of that going forward. And I think that this idea that we have to make things that go all over the planet uh, and base our success on that, I think for musicians that needs to be rethought. And I think that going back to how it was when I was a kid, like, you know, you go see Farrell Saunders or whatever, and 
Farrell was going to Farrell wasn't going to play whatever record they they were just going to play. If you got lucky, they might play creator. He might play creator as a mess as a mess. Yeah, the fact that there was no expectation that you were going to tour to support a record. You know what I mean? Go, I remember going to see Miles as a teenager, and you knew he wasn't. You know, the idea that he was going to play something off a record that wasn't going to happen. You, you go see Weather Report. You know, any of those groups from that era. You know, even. You know, the, the popular groups, you know, it's kind of like they were going to jam out. P-Funk was going to jam out. You know, Earth, Wind and Fire was going to jam out. So I think creating those kind of situations, I mean, it's almost like the same idea behind NFTs in a way, right? You're, you're buying this thing that, you know, it's, it's only you and a few other people have. I think it's like, you know, like that, going to go back to that with gigs which is how i understand staying gigs and how i understand the relationship with music kind of much more personal and not so i mean there's nothing wrong with the you know room for the people all thinking the same thing i mean i'm not mad at that at all you know what i mean you gotta you, you know but i'm saying how that it's almost like just a certain level of intimacy at a stadium concert in a way because everybody's thinking the same thing in the same way and everybody's sharing and ex- everybody's sharing an experience and I think getting back to sharing the experience, I think that for people who are so-called experimental musicians, whatever, I think that the experience thing is going to be important, you know, just in terms, you know, it's always been like that for me because you know, coming up seeing Sun Ra and on Ensemble of Chicago, people like that who provided an experience along with the music is something, you know, that I just think it should be a part of it. So it's not, that out of the way for me, but I think what that experience means in this era of people used to like, you know, digital technology, I think that that's going to change, but I think the idea that people want to have their own experience, I think that's going to be important going forward. Well, I, I, I think you're, you're, I'm interested to see how that plays out, you know, and I'm interested to see where, where things go. And I'm interested to see where you continue taking things. It sounds like you have a ton of work coming out over the next uh, the next year. Uh, so we'll have to have you back on to talk well, talk about some of that. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I have definitely the two the two short short things, you know, because I've already committed to them. <laughs> <laughs> is 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 the you know the the soundtrack on Migo, on editions Migo, and you know a further album for Northern Spy. You know, of course, Body Met is going to get together as well, you know, so there'll be something new from, you know, we didn't even talk about them that much, which is a great new, for me, new thing. You know, I've known, I've known Sasha a long time and we talked about doing stuff back when he still had Uwe, but yeah. it didn't happen until recently. And, and just really, you know, great combination of people. So I look forward to doing more than more of that as well, you know. Yeah, well, I can't wait to hear more of that. That record's great. Everybody should definitely check that one out. And Melvin, where can people find you online if they're looking for you? Well, music.melvin-gibbs.com. That's where the music is. And I don't have a dedicated website at this time, but the one, you know, I keep threatening to do a social media hiatus, you know, just, <laughs> uh, not hiatus, uh, fast i mean i've done them in the past yeah but the one thing that i kind of still feel drawn to is twitter so i'll be on there you know you can just you know melvin gives one word if you want to catch me on social media that's the place you can catch me yeah and uh i mean and i have a couple of oh on the other side i got a couple of writing things coming up you know too you know well one in particular i'm working actually working on something this weekend for jazz times so keep out of eye out in, in that world and I got a couple of other things and a couple of other kind of like writerly things that are going to be popping out in the next few months as well well yeah we didn't even get into all your your writing we'll, we'll get into that the next time as well but Melvin thank you so much for spending yeah. part of your Saturday with me well thank you very much for asking I appreciate it and uh and we'll talk again soon thanks so much for for, for doing it and have a good have a good rest of your weekend same to you thanks Melvin
Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jason Woodbury. I write, host, and produce Transmissions. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton. Sarah Goldstein and Jonathan Mark Walls make visuals for the show. And our executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard founder Justin Gage. You can hear him on Sirius XMU every Wednesday night. Tune in at 7 p.m. California time for the long-running, highly treasured Aquarium Drunkard show. If you dig transmissions and you want to help us out, leave a rating and a review wherever you listen. It helps new people find the show. And if you want to support us even more, you can find Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. We'll be back next Wednesday with another strange talk for our strange times, joined by recording legend John Leckie. We get into his time in the studio recording albums like All Things Must Pass, Life at Abbey Road, working with Radiohead, and much more. I hope you'll tune in. Until then, this has been Transmissions. Transmissions.